Our scripture reading is from Hosea 7, 1 through 10. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria. For they deal falsely, the thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them, they are before my face. By their evil they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers, they are all like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire, from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers, for with hearts like an oven they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders, in the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Morning. I remember uh, as a new believer some 40 years ago, being surprised at how persistent my own sin was. You know, I'd seen what God wanted me to do, and I would try to obey, and I'd found it a lot harder than I expected. And at times I saw in my own heart that I just did not want to do what God said. And there were deep sin patterns that didn't respond to just a commitment of the will to change, no matter how hard I tried to change it. One of the greatest revelations of marriage, in my first year of marriage, and you can maybe relate to this, was how sinful my wife was. Oh, no, I mean... (laughs) What I really meant was (laughs) how selfish I was, how sinful I was, how, how much I wanted things my own way. And no matter how I tried, I, I just didn't like having competition, someone else who wanted their way as well. But maybe what's more shocking is that now after 40 years of walking with the Lord, I, I see a lot of the same sin patterns in me. Sin is persistent. It goes deeper in me than I ever realized. One of the terms that theologians use for this is total depravity. Now that doesn't mean, total depravity doesn't mean that everything we do is completely evil, completely depraved, completely full of iniquity. That's not what that means. But what it means is that every part of us, everything we do is tainted with sin. Sin is like a drop of blue dye dropped into a jar of water. Every molecule gets colored by that, so there's nothing that isn't blue. True about our lives as well, there's nothing that isn't tainted with sin. There's nothing we do that's completely pure in this life. 
And if we think that we're fine and we're okay, we're doing it right, and we don't need God's forgiveness every minute, we will be arrogant, self-dependent, and we will continue to be controlled by sin and we won't even know it. You see, it's important we understand how sin has colored every part of us. Well, in Hosea chapter 7, God's trying to help Israel see the depth of their own sin and rebellion against God. They want to live like they're doing fine. And they think, just a little religion here and there, as long as we do sacrifices, as long as we show up to the temple three times a year, as long as we do this, as long as we do a little religion then, and then go live our lives however we want, we're fine. But God knows that that will not work. That only leads to more brokenness and hurt and harm. They don't know themselves well. And too often we don't either. So in this passage, God gives four illustrations to Israel. Four word pictures, four similes to help them understand their own hearts so they can learn to be free to actually really trust God and experience the fullness of his life. And I think this passage can help you and I to understand our own hearts and how sin has invaded every part of us so that we can see more fully, as we'll talk this morning, what it means to really be free to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. So pray with me. Lord, what a great passage for understanding truly who we are. And we confess we're too often blind to the depths of our rebellion against you. And we try to avoid looking there. But this morning, Lord, open the blind eyes. May we see ourselves as you see us. So that we can love you fully with our whole hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's this diagnosis of the heart we find in this passage? Well, he begins by, in verse 1 through 3, giving a diagnosis of, of the heart, revealing the blindness that's there. But I want to camp on that first phrase of the chapter. God is speaking through Hosea and he says, When I would heal Israel. When I would heal Israel. As we go through this passage and as we study the book of Hosea, it's important to understand God's persistent love. His desire is for us to be healed. His desire is for us to find the fullness of life that He offers us. He wants to bless us completely with Himself so that we can be blessed and then be a blessing to others to fulfill that great promise he gave to Abraham back in chapter 12 of Genesis, that he would bless us so that we could be a blessing to others. That's God's heart for you and for me, that we'd be whole and healed, loving God and loving others. So never forget that that's God's heart for you. But God says there's a problem. I, I want to heal you. I want to give you life. But there's something right in front of my face that is too big and has to be dealt with before I can really bless you like I want to bless you. 
Notice what he says. I would heal Israel. The iniquity of Ephraim is revealed. The evil deeds of Samaria, they deal falsely, etc., etc. Their deeds surround them. It's right in front of my face, God says. God says there's a problem that taints everything. And until that problem is dealt with, I can't bless you like I want to bless you. But we're like people who would go to the doctor and say, Doc, I've got a headache. You know, I'm not feeling very good. And uh, could you just give me some painkiller? And the doctor says, well, let's do a CT scan. Just make sure everything's okay in there. And so he does a CT scan. He comes back and says, well, guess what? You've got a bigger problem than you ever realized. You have a brain tumor. And we've got to deal with that before we can deal with the pain. Yeah, I'll give you a little pain killer, but that's not the real issue. There's a bigger issue. But we're like the patient who says, well, whatever, I don't really want to look at that. I just want relief for my pain. Well, see, a good doctor can't stop there. He's got to try to convince you to see the deeper problem that you've been ignoring all along. And that's exactly what's happening in this chapter in the book of Hosea, is that God's saying, Israel, you, you don't realize the depth of your problem. This iniquity, this sin, this rebellion against me is what's harming you. And that's what I want to deal with before we deal with the other symptoms that you are concerned about. God's trying to get Israel to face the real problem in their lives. But notice verse 2, it says, They do not consider that I remember all their evil. They refuse to look at it. They don't even want to look at it. They don't even want to consider what God says. Too often, I think, we're like that, like a patient who doesn't want to listen to the diagnosis from the doctor. So what God does through Hosea is now he goes on to give four illustrations to try to get Israel to begin to see the deeper issues in their own hearts. The first illustration is one that's a heated oven. A heated oven. He repeats it several times, beginning in verse 4. They're all adulterers. They're like a heated oven whose baker stirs the fire. I want to show you a picture of what Hosea is referring to. This is a Middle Eastern oven. So it would be the kind of oven that Hosea is thinking about. I remember being on a mission trip to Pakistan and seeing an oven like this, and it was about 110 degrees outside. But we walked into this kitchen where these men were sitting around the oven and they were cooking the bread. And the, you build, it's a big earthenware oven, and they build a big fire underneath, and then when the fire dies down and it's just hot with coals, then you take the bread with these sticks and stick it up on the underside of the oven, stick it to the wall of the oven until it cooks, and then you take it out. But it was probably 140 degrees in there. It was a heated oven. And he's describing, God is describing, well, Israel's like a heated oven, an oven that's heated up and it's so hot that it's constantly smoldering. The baker doesn't even have to stir up the coals or anything because the passions are out of control. What's he talking about here? What's this illustration refer to? I think it's a picture of our emotions, our passions being tainted by sin that we have misdirected passions, that in our fallenness, we don't even realize it so often, but our passions are out of control. They're simmering. They're misplaced. 
He says we're adulterers. Israel's like adulterers that they have sexual desire that's misplaced. They're drawn to anesthetics like wine, it describes. Talks about having a mocking heart, this idea of mocking others. An anger that smolders all night and then flares up in the morning. This consuming of others because of my own passions and my emotions. That's the descriptions he gives in these verses 4 through 7. You see, he's trying to get across to Israel and to us a realization that sin really has tainted our desires, our emotions. They're twisted. They're not accurate. They don't match up with reality. We seek, we have passion for the wrong things. Our hearts are drawn to want power, approval, money, things, etc., rather than God. I remember as a boy, the new G.I. Joe had come out. This was in the late 60s, some of you remember. He was cool, like 10 inches high, this G.I. Joe, and he had all kinds of army gear and all kinds of stuff you could do with him. And I was about 9 or 10. I just had to have that, and I kept bugging my parents until I got it. And you know, it wasn't quite as satisfying as I thought it would be to have that G.I. Joe. And we may be more sophisticated as adults, but I think often we're controlled by passions like that. We get a lust for something, something that we think we need, and if I just have this, whatever it might be, another person to love us, a thing, security of a bank account, or whatever it is we think we need, to be satisfied in life. But those are misplaced passions. They don't fit reality. And we misunderstand our feelings. Sometimes we think, well, gee, I don't love my spouse like I did, and I'm kind of angry at them, so I guess we're not in love anymore or something. And we, we just don't understand our feelings. So this illustration of a heated oven gives this idea and this picture of passions that are just controlling us and they're out of control and they're flaring up here and there and they're misdirected instead of focusing on God and finding our life and our fulfillment in Him. So what do we do with our feelings? Well, we tend to either kind of stuff them, but then they simmer and they flare up, or we unleash them, just let them go and let them control us. Or sometimes we just, we don't like our negative feelings, so we anesthetize them, like the passage says, with wine or drugs or food or TV or pleasure or whatever we think will deaden the pain of those emotions of living in a broken world as a broken people. So that's really the picture he gives here. So the question then becomes for us, how then, if that's the reality about my own heart, then how can my passions begin to get redeemed. How can I learn to submit those to God in a healthy way? How can I learn to desire God above all else? How can I learn to be what Jesus says in Mark chapter 12 where he's confronted by a scribe and the scribe says, hey, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says it's to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. How can my heart love God that completely? How do I get there? How can my heart be tuned 
in with God. The picture that David gives is beautiful, I think, in Psalm 63, where he describes this, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. You see, David had learned to desire God above all else. Psalm 27, he says, One thing I've asked of the Lord, that I might dwell in your sanctuary, that I might be with you. So how do our hearts desire God to that degree? How do we get there? So that our passions don't control us and take us away from God, but they take us to God. Well, I think the answer is kind of simple, but challenging for us. How did David get there? I think he got there by spending time with God. When he was a shepherd in the wilderness, he spent time with God and wrote psalms and meditated on the Lord and thought about who the Lord is as a shepherd, as our God, as our Savior, as the God of the Old Testament. And he got to know Him. And over time, that awakened his desire for God. When I first met Jeannie, I thought she was pretty lovely as a woman. But I didn't know her. But we started dating and started spending more and more time together. I began to have a desire to know her more and more. And my, my love for her increased and grew. Why? Because I knew her better. And now after 34 years of marriage, I love her more than I ever have because I know her better. I've spent a lot of time with her over those years. And sometimes I get the sense that people say, well, God, help me love you more, and then they just kind of go live life and hope God does something. Well, how are you going to get to know God more and love him more? You've got to spend time with him. Quiet time, prayer time's important, those formal times, but, but really what's most important is bringing God into everyday life making him part of your work, of your studies if you're a student, of your friendships, of your relationships, bringing God in so you're familiar with him in every part of your life so that you're spending time with him in all kinds of contexts and all kinds of ways so your love for him can deepen. That's how you learn to desire God above all else. It's spending time, consistent time with him. So God brings this illustration of a heated oven to challenge them to think about their own passions, their own emotions, and how they're dealing with them and how they can be given over to God and directed to God. The second illustration he uses really focuses on our thinking, on our minds. And it's the illustration of an unturned cake. Here's just a picture of a cake that's burned on one side because it didn't, get turned. It was too close to the heat on one side. And picture, I think, what the illustration is meant to picture of burned on one side and gooey on the other. It's inedible. Now, how does he describe that? He says Israel is, mixes with the other nations. Israel doesn't understand themselves. Israel's foolish. 
They devour strangers, verse 9, devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they not, do not return to the Lord. What's the picture here? It's, it, it's of a people that are mixing with the nations, taking their ideas from what the other nations say, rather than looking to God and his truth, and so they're confused. They don't even know who they are. They don't even know how other people are treating them, it says. Strangers are taking advantage of them. They don't even know it. They don't even know they're getting gray hairs. They don't understand themselves. They don't understand reality. They're confused about why their lives are falling apart. They end up either burnt or raw, half-baked in their thinking, but never getting the whole picture. They misunderstand reality. Charles Spurgeon describes this illustration this way. A cake not turned is soon burnt on the side nearest the fire. And although no man can have too much religion, there are some who seem burnt black with bigoted zeal for that part of truth which they've received. Or they're charred to a cinder with a vainglorious pharisaic ostentation of those religious performances which suit their humor. He says our tendency is to focus on one part of truth, one part of religious observance perhaps, and, to the, and we ignore everything else and the result is we're confused, we're not helpful, we're burnt, we're inedible. I think what the illustration is meant to say is that sin taints our thinking as well as our passions. It makes us ignorant of reality, of who we are and what the real problems are. Sin makes us stupid. It just does. Sin has tainted us from the fall. And you and I are all in this room, though we live in a postmodern age increasingly, but we're all products of the Enlightenment. And we are taught to trust our rational thinking. If I believe, if I understand it this way, then it must be true. We're taught to understand our rational thinking, to trust our minds, to believe what we think, to think that we're objective. And I think what the passage is encouraging us to know is that we're not objective. Our thinking is tainted. It's twisted. We don't see the whole picture. We're blind and ignorant and twisted in our thinking. Our thinking is half-baked. It's overdone. It's never really healthy and in line with reality. So how do we get a redeemed mind? A mind that's in line with truth, with reality. Ray Stedman says this, Well, this is what the Scriptures are for. They are your guide so you can tell what is true and what's false, what's right and what's wrong. And unless a Christian spends time in the Word regularly, he will be lost in a sea of relativism where he does not know what's right or wrong. Your mind becomes confused and blinded and you can be misled and manipulated. And I think too many of us as Christians, because we're not just in the Word and living in the Word and letting it change our thinking, that we're misled and manipulated by the world around us. I've had a number of Christians say this, well, you know, I tried reading the Word, but I just didn't understand it. 
I tried to spend time in the Word, but, you know, I didn't get much out of it. But what we don't realize is, over time, as you continue to read, whether you get a lot out of it or not, in one particular sitting, you are changing your worldview. You are changing your thinking. You're allowing God to begin to change the way you look at life, the way you look at yourself. Because the Word is a living Word and it has power to change your thinking. So my encouragement to you is don't use those excuses. Hear teaching like on a Sunday morning. Go to BSF, go to Bible studies, but also you need to be seeped in the Word yourself. Baking in the Word yourself day by day so that your thinking can be changed. Another important part, I think, of having your thinking changed is realizing that only the Spirit of God can really open your eyes to truth. And that means depending on Him, saying, Lord, I need You to open my eyes. I need You to help me understand myself and my situation. First. Corinthians chapter 2 says this, The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. But the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ in the Word and we have the Spirit of God in us so we can cry out to God, God, help me understand Your Word. Change my thinking. Get me in line with Your thinking. But the world around us doesn't have the Spirit. It doesn't have truth and they do not get it. I remember as a student in college, I was in one of the top psychology departments in the world, really, and I was going to double major in history and psychology because I was interested in that. And I got almost to the end. I just needed to take a couple more classes and I dropped out of psychology. Why? Because I saw that as unbelievers, they, they were good at observing behavior, human behavior, but they had no answers. They couldn't understand the deeper realities of what was going on in the human heart and they couldn't give real answers as to how to fix it either. You see, the world is blind. Without the Spirit, they can't understand truth. And we can be easily misled if we're not steeped in the truth and letting God's Word change our thinking and help us see reality. So that's the challenge to Israel. It's a challenge to us that this burnt bread is a picture of our thinking that is incomplete. The third illustration he uses, he's talked about their passions being twisted, their thinking being twisted, and the third illustration directs their will to say even their wills are misdirected. And he uses the illustration of a dove, a silly dove. Here's a dove. We have many in our backyard. We have a bird feeder. You may see them. They're flighty. They're flying all over the place. They're, they don't seem to have any direction at all. Look at this one here. He's facing one way and yet his head's going the other and it's like he doesn't know where he's going. <laughs> and that's the illustration he used. Let me read verse 11 and following. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense. They're calling to Egypt. They're going to Assyria. 
As they go, I'll spread my net over them. I'll bring them down like birds of the heavens. I'll discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they've strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they've rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. I think this illustration is meant to describe a dove. Israel is like a dove in that they can't make good choices. They're flighty. They don't choose the right thing to do. They're naive. The word for silly there means naive. It means to be so, in the words of Ray Steadman, so open-minded, your brains fall out. (laughs) Oh, that's a good idea. Let's do that. Oh, wait, here's a good idea. Let's do that. Oh, let's do this. Let's read the latest book and let's try that and let's do this. And that's like a silly dove. The commentator David Hubbard says this word silly or without sense it's translated is literally without heart, he says. That is, without power and judgment to make sound choices readily influenced by irrational factors. What is the point? He's saying Israel has an untrained will. They're flighty. They don't know how to make good choices. They go from here to there in Assyria and Egypt, and, but they don't choose well. They don't choose to follow me. They stray from me. They stray. They rebel. They go their own way. And folks, what he's saying about Israel is true about us. You see, we have an untrained will. We have a hard time choosing the right thing. The way it's described by Paul in Romans, the book of Romans, verse, chapter 6, verse 16, he says this, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? What's his point? He's saying, your will is never free. We like to think we have free will and can choose whatever we want, but he's saying that's not true. You're always either a slave to sin, to selfishness, to going your own way apart from God, or you're a slave to God. Those are the only two options. You're a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. So Paul goes on in chapter 7 to describe his own experience of realizing this. Chapter 7, verse 18 says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin which dwells in me. Paul is describing his own Christian life as he realized Wow, you know what? I have a twisted will. I have a will that I do not choose the right thing very often. I'm not truly free. Have you seen this in your own life? When you try to say no to sin or yes to God, there's something that continues to fail. When, when you commit, okay, God, I'm really going to follow you this time. I'm really going to have my quiet time regularly. I'm really going to do this. I, I'm really... And it lasts a few days and then your will doesn't continue to follow through. 
Or, I really am going to get rid of this sin. I'll never do it again. Famous last words, huh? It doesn't happen. Because our wills are tainted. Just like our emotions and our minds, our wills are twisted. So how do we gain a redeemed will? How do we have a will that is able to truly desire God and His truth and actually choose it? How do we get there? How do we stop being a silly dove that's flighty and chooses one thing or another but can't continue? Well, it's interesting in verse 14, chapter 7, where he says this, this illustration, this picture. He says, They do not, Israel does not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. God says, I wish they would cry to me from their heart instead of wail upon their beds. So what's the difference? What does it mean to cry to God from the heart versus wail upon the beds? I think what he's getting at is this. To cry from the heart is to say, God, I desperately need to depend on you every minute. From the heart, I'm crying out to you. I need you every moment. It's a cry of desperation that we just sung about. It's that cry of dependence that God responds to. But to wail on your bed is to say, Oh, God, you need to fix this. My life's a mess. Why won't you do anything? And it's complaining. To wail is to complain and to demand that God come through the way I want Him to. Very different perspective. I I think that's really significant in being able to develop a will that can truly obey God is to cry out in dependence on Him. I need you. And in fact, a passage that reinforces this in the New Testament is Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, where Paul writes this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, wow, you obey. Let's talk about obedience. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both the willingness and the working for his good pleasure. Paul, are you kind of schizo here? I mean, you're saying, I need to work hard to work out God's will, but it's God who's working it in me and even is the one who gives me the willingness to do it. You see, it's that tension in the Christian life between dependence on God and, di- and discipline to obey. You want your will to be changed so you can obey God? Cry out to the Lord, Lord, I need you. You are the one who needs to give me the willingness. You are the one who needs to live through me. I need to depend on you every second. And therefore, I will make the choice to step out in obedience. I will work out my salvation by choosing it. See, it's both. And God works in the mysterious way, in that combination, to change our wills. So we begin to desire His will and we're able to choose His will more and more over time, as we seek to obey, always relying on His life in us to do so. That's, I think, how we get a redeemed will. 
Well, the last illustration he uses is of a deceitful bow. These last two verses, 15 and 16, Although I trained and strengthened their arms, God says, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a deceitful bow or treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. They shall, this shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. He says, Israel is like a deceitful or treacherous bow. I have a beautiful bow here. My son Jordan made it with a, a friend, uh, someone who used to be on staff here, who's a good workman, and it's laminated, it's gorgeous, it's, a, it's really a beautiful bow. But interesting, when we strung the bow and pulled it back, there was a fault in this wood and it twisted. And so you could not shoot an arrow with it. This is a beautiful but deceitful bow. <laughs> a treacherous bow. That's really the illustration that he's using here of Israel. He says Israel is like a deceitful bow. It looks like they should be able to accomplish what I long for them to accomplish. I've trained them, he says to accomplish my will, to be a blessing to the nations, and yet they're useless. They're not able to fulfill their purposes. I've put a lot of resources into them, and they're unable to be what I've created them to be. Why? Because their passions are twisted, their thinking is foolish, and their wills are perverted and misdirected. Think about mankind in general, created in God's image. Mankind is capable of incredible good. We can do much to alleviate poverty and care for others and build hospitals and etc. We've done a lot of good, just mankind in general has. And yet have you noticed that everything that mankind does gets twisted, gets perverted, ends up doing harm. We think we're doing good things and we end up hurting the environment. We work towards peace and we create more war. We think we're helping poverty by giving people free welfare and we end up breaking up families and doing harm to people's souls who can no longer choose good. Everything we do is tainted and twisted. And mankind, in general, desperately needs to know how they need God. Why is everything twisted? Because we have, we have passions that are misdirected. We have thinking that's foolish. And we have wills that are perverted. And we desperately need to bring those to God and learn what it means to trust Him and depend on Him. What's the ultimate answer? Jesus said, the greatest commandment, oh, if you could only love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, with all that you are, learn to give all that you are to Him and let Him redeem all that you are. Then you'll be a useful bow, having an impact on the world for good. So God's calling to us from this passage, learn to come to God and let Him redeem us. Recognize how desperately you need Him every minute. 
Don't trust in yourself, your own feelings, your own thinking, your own will, but learn to submit that to the Lord. Lord, change me and cry out to Him to learn how dry and thirsty you are. You really need Him. And God will redeem, renew, cleanse, and begin to live through you. God longs to bless you so you can be a blessing to others. Let's pray. Lord, what a powerful passage revealing our own hearts and how much we need you. May you open our blind eyes so we can see how desperate we are to depend on you. And may we cling to you and find you to be the redeemer of our entire souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.